your memory. I suppose as time goes by, details get fuzzy, don't they? Ernie, uh, that's pretty good up here. Maybe we don't remember all the details. Uh, maybe facts become harder for us to recall. Sometimes we don't know something like we think we do. Those of us who have grown up in church, in Bible study, have heard many stories involving Samaritans. The Samaritan man, the good Samaritan, the, the Samaritan leper, the, the Samaritan woman of John chapter 4. But what do we really know about the Samaritans? What do we recall about this group of people? Were they all that bad? as we are often sometimes led to believe. The Samaritans are often portrayed as being a mixed race population, uh, being people that were pagan in their religion, or, or at least blended Judaism and paganism. Later, uh, as, we, as we think about the Samaritans, we, we think about them as being that mixed race folks, mixed race pagans. And, and many scholars believe that because when you look over at 2 Kings chapter 17, we read about what happens after the Assyrians take over Israel. And they transport some of the Israelites to Assyria. And 2 Kings chapter 17 tells us that the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cutha and from Alba and from Hamath and from Sepharavim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. And so we look at 2 Kings and we know, well, after Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians and the Assyrians deported some of the folks, this is what they did. And they did that as kind of a way of population control. And so we look at the people that lived in Samaria from about 720 B.C. onward. Well, that's who these folks are. That's who lived in Samaria. Second Kings go on, goes on to tell us, and we pick up here in verse 25, at the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them and killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, that is the people there that were transplanted there. The nations whom you have carried away into exile, the cities of Samaria, do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, that is, take one of these Israelite priests, and let them go and live there, and let him teach the custom of the God of the land. So send one of those Israelite priests back to Samaria so he can teach these other peoples of the God of the Bible. That's not what the king of Assyria said, but that's who he's talking about. The God of the Bible, so they can appease that God. Verse 28 says, So one of the priests whom they carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Every nation in the cities in which they had lived. But he goes on in 2 Kings 17. And he says, So they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the highest houses of the high places. 
they feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had carried away into exile. To this day, that is the day that the chronicler of 2 Kings writes, to this day they do according to the earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord. Nor do they follow the statutes or the ordinances or the law or the law or the commandments which the Lord God commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So as we stop there in 2 Kings, we, we seem to have a picture of these transplanted people who were afraid of being attacked by these lions. And so they reach out to the king of Assyria for relief. And they say, you got to do something so these folks can know the, the customs of the land so they can appease that God so things won't be so bad for us. And they send the priest. The priest teaches them. So they kind of know the Mosaic law. But as time goes on, they blend that teaching of the Mosaic law with their own customs, their own religion. And so many scholars look at 2 Kings chapter 17 and say, well, that's who the Samaritans are. But you notice the text doesn't call them Samaritans. It says these were the people living around Samaria. And so as we think about the Samaritans of the New Testament, we have to ask ourselves, are these the same folks? Have things changed? Historically, we know that the Samaritans of the New Testament were not pagans. In fact, the Samaritans would say, we're not even a mixed breed. The Samaritans would claim that they were the descendants of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh who were left by the Assyrians. And because archaeology and history have not found anything of this time period, we simply can't know who the Samaritans of the New Testament were, for sure. I suspect, and I believe, that yes, they were a mixed, a mixed race. You remember when Ezra and Nehemiah came back to rebuild the temple after Jerusalem had been destroyed and Judah had been destroyed and the Persians now controlled things. The Persians allowed them to come back and rebuild. You remember it talks about in Ezra and Nehemiah, the people of Samaria wanting to join with them in building the temple, but the Jews said, no, you can't because you can't prove your ethnicity as Jews. So you have no part of us. And the people of Samaria tried to prevent them from building the walls of Jerusalem and from rebuilding the temple. And there is animosity. But even in Ezra and Nehemiah, it doesn't call them Samaritans. And, and so the Samaritans that still exist today claim that they are descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh. I happen to believe they probably were these folks that intermarried between the Israelites that were left and the peoples that were transported there. But we can know for sure historically that they weren't pagan in the first century when Jesus lived. The Samaritans point to the fact that in the original language, the word Samaritan means the keepers. And they prided themselves in Jesus' day of being keepers of the Torah. Or we might say the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In fact, they had in their own language translated the Torah. And so they believed that they had the right translation. They had the true Torah. And they felt like the Jews were the ones that had corrupted the Old Testament. 
they thought that the Jewish priesthood was corrupted. And so if you've sat in a Bible class, if you've gone to church, oftentimes we frame the hatred, the animosity that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews as being race-based. But really it wasn't. It was a question of the fact that the Samaritans thumbed their nose at the Jews and said, you guys have really messed up the Old Testament. Or they would say the Torah. And the Jews would say, no, 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 we haven't, we're not the ones who messed up the Torah. You guys messed up the Torah. You guys have corrupted the priesthood. And there was so much animosity and so much anger between these two groups that there was even bloodshed. The Samaritans believed that as you read Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 46, the Jewish translation of Deuteronomy, which I believe is the correct one, says that God is directing Moses and that he told Moses, he says, so when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I'm commanding you today. You shall coat them with wine. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord. And then it continues in verse 6. And you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God. He goes on for the next couple of verses talking about the different offerings they were to make on the altar. Well, the Samaritans believed, as you can see, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal are just across from each other. There are very little space in between them. The Samaritans believed, no, no, really what Moses said is you should set up that altar on Mount Gerizim. So for the Samaritans, the temple and worship was supposed to take place on Mount Gerizim. They say, well, no, the, the, the Jews, Ezra rewrote Deuteronomy, and, and he changed it to Mount Ebal. And so because of that, there is hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews, and the Samaritans said, we know the right way. We're supposed to be worshiping on Mount Gerizim. And they had a temple on Mount Gerizim until the Jews in the first century B.C. went and destroyed it and killed all the people that were around it. That's how much anger and hatred existed between these two groups based on the issue of where you worship, which temple you worship in. Otherwise, they were completely the same. So much so that when Everett Ferguson wrote his book on the backgrounds, the historical backgrounds of the New Testament, he classifies or groups the study of the Samaritans under the heading of sects of Judaism. Because they were the same except for a couple of minor differences. The Samaritans prided themselves on truly following the Torah. And they thought they were keepers of the truth of the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 through 19. God told Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I commanded him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So they believed in the Messiah, an anointed one. And their idea, the Samaritans' idea of the anointed one, was from Deuteronomy chapter 18, that there is going to come a great prophet just like Moses. And I believe that to be the case. And by the way, the Jews believe that to be the case. But the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. And so this is their concept of the Messiah. Whereas the Jews believed in the Messiah in this regard, but also as a descendant of David. So when we come to John chapter 4, 
And we see that Jesus is leaving Judea and he's heading towards Galilee. He's going to walk through the territory of Samaria. And as he travels through Samaria, he encounters a Samaritan woman. John chapter 4 verse 7 says there came a woman. They stop in Cyprus. Some, some sources pronounce it sicker. But it's a city built on the ruins of Shechem, which was a great city in the Old Testament. It had been destroyed. And now Cyprus is there. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Things were so bad that as John tells this story, he reminds the readers of the fact, he adds the fact that the woman is puzzled that Jesus would talk to her because she's a Samaritan. And there's so much animosity between these two groups that she says, how is it that you're talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Because Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And yet Jesus has a conversation with this woman. Someone with whom there should be disdain. The context culturally was that these two people should not even be talking to each other. And yet Jesus has a very gentle and kind conversation with this woman that continues throughout this chapter in John, John chapter 3. And so they talk about things. And Jesus has a willingness to talk with this woman. And because of that, he is able to reveal some personal information. And as he does, she acknowledges Jesus as being a prophet. He's talking to her about living water as opposed to the water of the will, well. And he said to her, go and call your husband. She says, give me this water that you're talking about. Jesus says, I'll give you this water. But first, he says, verse 16, you go and call your husband here. The woman says, I have no husband. Jesus said, you have said correctly, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you, are, whom you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now remember, there's no Facebook, there's no Twitter, there's no Instagram, there's no way Jesus could know that this woman has had five husbands and is now living with someone who is not her husband. He's a complete stranger. He's a Jew, she is a Samaritan, he is from Judea, or from Galilee actually. And she lives in the province or the region of Samaria. How could he possibly know that? And so the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. How could you possibly have known this? Now, Jesus isn't nasty with her. But he hangs it out there. Go get your husband. And she's truthful with him. And he says to her, Here's your situation. And she's dumbfounded, surprised by the fact that he's able to tell her her situation. And because of that, the woman has respect for Jesus. And she asks him a religious question. Or really, she makes a religious statement. Her statement is, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
here is a woman who has made some questionable moral choices in her life. Moral choices that would have been questioned by Jews, moral questions or decisions that would have been questioned by the Samaritans because both prided themselves on strictly following the law of Moses. The text never comes out and tells us that this woman has been divorced five times and is now living with someone who's not her husband, but it certainly implies that. Most women would have gone with the other women in the morning to gather water from the well together, but this woman is coming by herself, and she's coming in the middle of the day to gather water. She's ostracized to a great extent by this community of Samaritans. She was looked down on by this community. And yet she has faith in God. She is asking a religious question. And it's important for us to recognize this because in our lives it is easy to look at someone that we say is ungodly is living a sinful life. And we look at those folks and we say, they don't have any interest in God. But we can't know that. We can't know who is seeking God. Here is a woman who, even though she has made some questionable moral decisions in her life, still she is dying to know the answer to a religious question. Is my faith correct? Which place should we worship? In Jerusalem, in that temple, or on Mount Gerizim? In that temple. Which pattern of worship is correct? That's what she wants to know. This is a woman who has faith, even though she's not living according to that faith, as we might say. And so Jesus answers her. Verse 21, And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming, when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus answers her question. And, and her question, the answer to her question is, it's not about the physical aspect of worship any longer. Worship is spiritual. It's in neither place that men will worship because God wants spiritual worship. Jesus changes worship from being physical in nature to being spiritual in nature. He says God is spirit, therefore those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so he changes the concept of worship from being those physical acts done in a temple to being something that is spiritual. So the woman, if you look at the context, she says, look, 
We know that when the Messiah comes, he will reveal all things to us. He, he's going to tell us for sure where we're supposed to worship, how we're supposed to worship. And Jesus says to her, I am he. I am that Messiah. I am that person that Deuteronomy chapter 18 talked about, of a prophet like Moses coming to speak to the people and listen to him. Jesus says, I am that prophet. I am that Messiah. And because of that, the woman trusts Jesus. She believes Jesus. And she runs back into town. And she goes back into town and she says, Look, guys, here is someone who has told me everything I have done. And the town comes to see Jesus. Verse 34. As Jesus' disciples come to him and they have food, Jesus said, I can't eat. I've got work to do. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for the life, for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered that labor. Here comes the folks from town. Jesus says, get ready. The harvest is coming. Verse 39 says, From that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman. Come see this man that has told me everything I've ever done. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus is able to touch the lives of an entire city with whom there would have been animosity and disdain between the Jews and these people because of the differences of where to worship and how to worship. But because Jesus is kind to the woman, talks gently and nicely with the woman, she gets excited and goes to town says, everyone, come see this man. And they come out and they talk with Jesus. And for two days they learn from Jesus. And we might presume from how John concludes the passage that these people's lives were changed because of it. As we've been talking the last several weeks about our work, how we will serve and worship and grow, we've been looking at Jesus' interaction with different individuals in the New Testament. And mostly we've been looking at the idea of serving, how Jesus served different ones, and how through his serving and his kindness and his compassion, he touched lives, and lives were changed, and people were saved. That's certainly a lesson that we can draw from John chapter 4, as Jesus talks to the woman here in Sychar, the woman at the well. But we can also talk about the idea of worship. Because Jesus changes the idea of worship. No longer is worship centered around 
physical worship in a temple where there are particular rituals that were followed, that were physical rituals intended to draw people in and draw their attention because of the physical things they were doing. Instead, Jesus says, worship is spiritual. And it must be done in truth. And so we look at Jesus' interaction and we discover that our worship is spiritual. What we want to be doing here as the Biblical Church of Christ is to have spiritual worship. Worship that is in spirit. <laughs> And the truth. The tabernacle, Jesus said, or the Hebrew writer says, is obsolete. And because of that, the physical things done in worship that the Jews did, and even the Samaritans did, are done away with. The Hebrew writer says the main point of what's been said in his discussion is that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens and minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that the high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, that is, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. The worship done in the Jewish temple were only a copy, a shadow of the true worship. And so the Hebrew writer concludes this particular chapter in verse 13 by saying, a new covenant that he talked about is obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. In other words, all those elements in that Jewish worship in the temple, all those physical things have been done away with. We have a spiritual <coughs> worship. Our worship is spirit and heart centered. When we look in Ephesians chapter 5, I believe Paul is making a comparison between the pagan worship of, of the area of, of Roman Asia. We would call it Turkey today. But Jesus, or Paul says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. The pagans believed that as they drank wine in their religious services, they were fellowshipping, enjoying a meal with a God. And they would get drunk in the worship of that God. And Paul says, don't do that. That's just dissipation but be filled with the Spirit. And how do you get filled with the Spirit? Paul says, by speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the Father, making melody with your heart. That's why our worship is not a worship that is centered on physical things that we do, but on the activities of the heart, the activities of the spirit. And that's what we plan to do as the Bidrock Church of Christ. Our worship needs to be real. And as we do that, we need to be careful not to discount others, but instead to reach out to others. As we look at society, there are people that we encounter that we might very well tell ourselves, that person's not interested in God. Look at their life. I'm not pointing at you. <laughs> but we can 
look at folks and in our minds we say, look at that guy. That, that person's not interested in God or religious things. But how dare we? Because Jesus encounters a woman who by every standard of culture of her day said that she was a moral reprobate and why in the world would she be interested in God? And yet what is she talking with Jesus about? How do I need to worship? And Jesus says, here's how you worship. We need to be willing to reach out to folks even if we might easily dismiss them. Because we don't know who's truly seeking God. And we have the opportunity to show them and to teach them, here's how God says. We worship. We worship in spirit and in truth. And yet as we do that, we might have folks that tell us, wait a minute, what about the Psalms and the Old Testament passages? Aren't you just picking and choosing which ones you're going to follow as you talk about how to worship and singing and all that kind of good stuff? Well, remember, we're not picking and choosing because the Old Testament was something that was physically oriented to be a guide to lead us to the spiritual truth. The, old th- the things of the Old Testament, the Hebrew writer says, were just a shadow, a copy of the true worship. And so that's why in the New Testament, we worship according to the spiritual. Someone else might say, well, wait a minute, isn't the story in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, isn't that about something else other than worship? Well, of course, there are many lessons that we can pull out of this, but remember the schism that was dividing Jew and Samaritan in Jesus' day was the idea of worship, and specifically it boiled down to which mountain do you go to? Everything else was almost essentially the same. And this woman is asking Jesus, how do I worship? And so we can learn how we ought to worship. As we think about Jesus, and the Samaritan woman, and our reaching out, and the things that we do as the biblical church of Christ. We can see how Jesus made an impact on this woman whom others have discounted. She was immoral, she was too dirty, but she still had faith. And she was seeking the Messiah. And we encounter people just like her every day who are seeking the Messiah. And we need to not discount them. We need to reach out to them. And we can have an impact on it. And we can do that even as we keep our worship authentic and in spirit and in truth. And that's what we want to do as the biblical church of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you want to change things in your life to follow God and be united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, you can do that by being united with him in baptism, crucifying that old body of sin and living for God. And if that's what you want to do this morning, why don't you come just together and stand up.